we are jumping into our third, or I'm sorry, our fourth church of the seven churches that Jesus had John write to in the book of Revelation. As we jump into it, we've got a lot to go through, so there's not going to be a lot of introduction. We're just going to kind of dive right in. Um, it happens to be the longest letter written to the smallest city and probably the smallest church, but apparently Jesus had a lot to say to this group of people. So um, we, we've just got a lot to deal with and go through. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk fast, I guess, and I'm just going to ask you to listen fast and we'll be okay. And I know that God is going to do his work. Before we get into it, though, we have to remind ourselves, we have to remember the thread that kind of connects all of these sermons, all of these letters together. Jesus is teaching his people how to live lives that bring glory to him and joy to them. Jesus understands that for us to experience joy, to, to know peace and satisfaction and contentment in life is not to build kingdoms here, but to be a part of his kingdom, to bring him glory and live within that intended purpose. And so as we go into our places of business, our jobs, we, we do that no longer just simply to gain a living or to earn a living. Certainly that can be part of it. But primarily we, we live as missionaries in our places of work. We live for his glory at work. As children, parents, uh, spouses, friends, whatever type of relationship that's honored by him and mentioned by him is okay, those are relationships that we live in to exalt him. No longer do we live simply trying to find satisfaction from the people, but we live with this idea of loving others as we have been loved, forgiving others as we have been forgiven, all to exalt Jesus in his name and his purpose and his mission. Even as we gather in moments like this, typically people come into church in our culture today, people come into church today simply to gain something. I want to be taught. I want to receive. And so we even name these times services. I'm here to serve you. It's almost like you're showing up at a restaurant and expecting me to do everything I can to please you. The reality is, is that the inverse is true in that not that you're here for me, but that you're here to offer something up. That's your worship, your adoration. As I preach and as I strive to teach, I hope you do learn something. I hope you walk away better. I hope that you learn and you grow and that you mature in your faith. But the primary purpose we're here this morning is not to give me a place to preach. I got other things I can do that pay better money. I'm, I'm just the truth of it. That would make life a little easier for me. I didn't, I didn't do this. I'm not here just simply so I can have a place to preach. I'm here to honor God with my gifts and my abilities. You are here to, to hear his word, to hear his truth, and to respond to it in such a way that you give your life that you surrender further, that you honor him with your thoughts and your deeds and, your, and the intents and motives of who you are and what you do. Even in this moment, this is about Jesus. And he recognizes that for us, as we bring him glory, we gain great joy. These lifestyles of worship, this is the phrase I told you, you're going to hear it maybe in a little different ways. Every week you're going to hear it. These lifestyles of worship are expressed by making Jesus' fame the intended outcome of all we do. Wherever we go, whatever we do, it's Jesus' fame that we live for. And this is exactly what he's teaching in these letters. He's been addressing seven churches in Asia, and we're in the fourth one, as I mentioned. It's going to be Revelation 2, 18. But he's commending them for the good in their life. He's saying, hey, these are good things you're doing. This is great. Keep doing it. And then he's condemning them for the things that he doesn't approve of, the bad in their life. 
And he says, wait a minute, you need to repent. And so he gives warnings and he gives encouragement and he says, good job. And he says, that's not so good, <laughs> bad job. He gives some very direct words to some people that need to hear it. And in each letter, he comes to us and lets us know how then we can live in ways that we can glorify him. So we've been building a list of principles. And just so you know, as we finish this letter, the very next series that we're going to go into, we're going to have this list that, he's, that we've developed all the way through this, this series. We'll have this list and we'll challenge this in each other's lives. And then we're going to try and build from the Bible a biblical perspective about how we can bring change so that our lives most emulate these principles that he gives us. Doing the things that he approves of, not doing the things that he don't, doesn't approve of, and with the right motives and intents, because that's key. Just doing it for religious purposes doesn't work. But as I mentioned, we're going to be read, reading it, uh, the, the letter to the church at Thyatira, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. If you've got a Bible, certainly you're welcome to follow along. The verses are on the screen. If you have a smart device, it's a really cool thing. version has a, a live event that you can go to. You can find us by searching their live events, and you can follow along with everything that's going to be on the PowerPoint, in, and, and it enables you to have the verses there and make take your own notes. It's pretty cool. So if you've got that available, certainly take advantage of it. But here we go to the church in Thyatira, verse 18. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And we're going to stop right there. We're going to deal with this. We're going to, because it's such a long letter, we're not going to read it all the way through. We're going to take it in pieces. In each of the letters, Jesus has introduced himself in some way that is relevant to the words he's about to say. It's relevant to, to this church that they hear him introduce himself in this way. And here we learn Jesus is the divine judge. Now, I know if you're, a, if you're one of these people, and, and, and I'm not trying to be offensive, but if you're one of these people that think the New Testament is all about love and you love the God of the New Testament but can't really stand the God of the Old Testament, here's your glimpse of the God of the Old Testament. This is Jesus of the Old Testament, okay? The, and, and just as a side note, let me, let me say this. It's not in my notes, but the Old Testament gives us a clear picture of God in the fullness of who he is, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his judgment, his grace and his mercy and his willingness to long suffer, to be patient with people. It gives us a very full picture of the attributes and identity of our God. In the New Testament, we spend less time dealing with judgment because we're dealing with life in Christ. And the New Testament belongs to Christians, not to the world. And so in Christ, we are removed from judgment. There is no condemnation. We walk in his grace. And so that's why the New Testament seems a little more centered around forgiveness and, and grace and mercy. But don't, don't for a moment think that judgment is not real. It's not a real attribute of our God and Jesus especially. This is no wussy Jesus. This is the God who created and who has an expectation for his people. He is the divine judge. Okay, here's the deal. He says, I got eyes like fire. Now, here's the thing about fire. Fire is a good thing in many ways. I mean, we like it to cook with, right? I mean, not many of us want to eat a raw steak. It's not like we go to the restaurant and ask for a steak uncooked because that's not good. We want it seasoned right and we want it cooked just right. Now, for, for, for people that is different, my, life, my wife really likes her stuff done. 
her mom likes stuff burnt. I like it in the middle so it's still juicy and you can actually enjoy it and you don't have to chew on each bite for 15 minutes. But, but the reality is, is that we appreciate fire for things like that. It's a good thing. It refines. Without fire, we wouldn't have gold that we enjoyed and appreciated. It, have you seen gold in its, in its form that we dig it out of the earth when it comes as ore? We, we don't buy that in the stores, do we? Nobody wants that. Gold is valuable when it's been refined. We need fire for that. Fire refines things. But fire also tests things. That which is good, fire refines. But that which is bad, is temporary, self, selfish, evil, Jesus says it destroys. And so thankfully, as believers, we're being refined by this fire that the impurities are being, being burned out of us. And what's left over is the beauty and the valuable commodity that is a saint who has been made clean in Jesus Christ. But this fire, it, it reveals what's really good, what really isn't. It purifies the good and destroys the bad. But then it talks about his feet of brass, and it likely alludes to the strength and stability that Jesus provides for his people. <clears throat> at, at this, at this we, we should, our ears should perk up at this introduction. Because here, and in, in this is the only place I think, you can go and you can Google it yourself, or you can do a search in your own Bible software. I believe this is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus calls himself the Son of God. He, he comes to this church and he says, the Son of God. I am the Son of God, whose eyes are like fire. I see into you, he says. I know the thoughts and intents of your heart. I know what good works are and what bad works are. And in me, there's stability and there's strength and there's power. And then he's about to lay out these words, and it, it, it should draw us to this place where we want to hear what our divine creator, divine judge has to say to us. And he continues in verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance that, that your latter works exceed the first. Man, I would, I would love it if this letter stopped here because I think there's, there's a lot of things that we can apply to our own church here. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. Here we see the good and the bad. We see Jesus commending and condemning. We see him standing in a place, the one who sees and knows us, telling them what's good about their church and the good about who they are as people. It's not good about their building. It's not good about their meeting location. It's not good about their events. It's good about the people. It's good about who they are in him. And he comes and he says, I know your works. I know your works. Now, these aren't lazy Christians. Their efforts lined up with their faith. The, the way that they lived and acted and the way that they spent time and money and the way that they gave their efforts, the way that they worked, the way that they lived, it lined up with their faith. I know your works. He says, I know your love. And I really think that the rest of this list really defines this first thing that he says about them. He says, I know your love. It's not just emotional love. It's not that 
that, you know, high school, I just found this great girl that I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And in a month, you know, that's kind of passed. And you realize, oh, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with her. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. We're talking about agape, godly love, that love that gives itself for the good of others, that sacrifices, that, you know, we feel the cost of what we're doing. We feel the the weight and, and, and the effort that we're giving away so that others can benefit. That's the kind of love. This defines their works in that this is the motive of their works. This is the motive of the things that they're doing. They, they are working, they're serving, they're, they're toiling with love. They are living and loving as Jesus has called them to and as he is loved. And then he says, I know your faith. And the word that signif- that, that's used here it signifies um, this act of belief. They didn't just hold an intellectual knowledge. It wasn't like they could come forward on a Sunday morning and say, I believe in Jesus, and then it not change anything about the way they live. It didn't, they didn't come forward. They didn't, they didn't say, hey, I'm doing all these good works, and, and the motive or the, the foundation of those works being their selfish gain. They had an understanding, a trust in Jesus. And they looked to him to, to provide for them. And, and this idea, this faith, was the foundation of all they did, the way they lived. And so it became that foundation of their works with a service. He then says, I know your service. This word potentially signifies mercy ministries. You know, there's a lot of churches that get involved in this. We have, we have people who go downtown and do things that are extremely generous and care, that we care about people who have less. We have people that go downtown, they give out food, they share the gospel. We have people here, in fact, part of our budget, we maintain and, and protect a certain amount of money so that in the event somebody in our church gets into a place where that they can't provide for themselves for a moment, that we can come alongside and help. We're serving and ministering to one another. This is the, what that church was doing. They were serving and ministering. They were making sure needs were met. They were taking care of one another. They were helping one another stand up in sin and live holy lives. They were they were doing what Jesus expected them to do as a, as a body of believers. That's the work that they did. It's the kind of work they, they were doing and that he's commending. And then he says, I know your patient endurance. Now, this patient endurance, when we think of patience, so in many cases we think of being patient with people or patient in circumstances and having to wait through things. And, and the reality is in the Greek language, there's a, there's a, a word for uh, patience with people macrothumio, and there's a patience with circumstances, hupum, I'm going to say it wrong, I'm, anyway, I'm not a Greek scholar, I just study it and I know that's what, it's, what it means, but the reality is this word is speaking about their circumstances, so we recognize in this word that they are living in a place, so that they are feeling the sacrifice, that they are understanding the weight of giving of themselves, and we can see the circumstances in which they live, they felt it. Now, we don't hear Jesus say, I know that you live in Satan's temple or at Satan's throne like he's used uh, of some other cities, but we do recognize that they're living in such a way that their faith, that the service that they're giving brought oppression, persecution, and struggle. It means that they were at times giving beyond what they thought they could, that they could give. They were serving in ways that they, you know, I have to give this up so that I can go over here and do this for my brothers and sisters in Christ. They were using their gifts and ministering in such a way that they felt the cost and they were having to endure. Endurance might feel good after it's done. It might be great to say, man, I endured through all of that. It may 
may bring you great joy in the end, but let me tell you, endurance is never something that feels good while you're having to do it. People who run endurance races will tell you the pains and the, and the and the, and, and their bodies, man, to even get to the place that they can do these things. They endure great, great difficulty. I am training for a bike ride that's longer than I think is really humanly right to ride. I, but we're doing it. My wife had this great idea, and I was like, I love you, baby. I guess we'll do it. It's CMS 150. It's a 150-mile bike ride over two days, 75 miles a day. And we got a long way to go before we get there. To endure this training, have you ever ridden, I mean, like the first day you ride a bike and you get off and, and what happens the next day? It's not really your legs that hurt, not your arms, not your stomach. You know what hurts? Yeah. You know. Man, it is painful. It's endurance. It never feels good to endure. But when you cross the place where you've endured, Man, then you recognize all of the growth that comes behind. That's what these people are dealing with. They're toiling, they're striving, they're enduring. And then he says, this is increasing. And here's the key. I think this is the reason why Jesus wants to commend this in this church. Because their works are increasing. And, and that doesn't mean that they're working longer hours at their job. It doesn't mean that maybe even the magnitude of their works are increasing. It's not like all of a sudden they had a healer there who was able to walk around and heal the sick and make the blind see. We, don't, we have no report of that. We have no understanding that the magnitude of their works grew. But what we can understand is that as they grew in Christ, the types of works that they were doing, the motives for their works that they were doing, the efforts that they were giving, the ways that they were spending their money, they were less centered on self, less mixed with bad motives, and more intentionally and more purely focused on making Jesus famous. What they were doing was growing as they matured. And the reality is, I think this is the principle that we need to learn from this church. And I think I forgot to put a slide up there for it. But listen, here's the principle I think we need to learn from this church as Jesus commends. Spiritual growth is the evidence of Jesus' work in us. And it's also the expectation for all Christians to pursue. We were never meant to be saved and then stay. He didn't save us to leave us where we were. His purpose, Romans 8 tells us, His purpose, God's purpose, as He calls us and justifies us and moves us towards glorification, His purpose is to make us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. There should be constant growth from the moment of salvation to the moment of glorification. See, the reality is this, is that yesterday, you might look at your life, you might be able to look back yesterday and say, you know what, I, I don't look much different today than I did yesterday. But how about a year ago? Have you grown? Has your devotion to Christ grown? Are you more committed to His work, to His purposes, to His mission, to the ways that He would have you live with your time, your gifts, your abilities, your energy, your money? Are, are, you, are you more willing to, to recognize that, wait a minute, those aren't even mine, but they're given as a gift from Him? Are you more willing to recognize that you are simply a servant? 
Are you more willing to recognize that you're not a child of the world, but that you're a child of God? Are you you more ready to recognize that than maybe five years ago? You see, here's the reality is I think all too often in our culture today, we are left in a place where we think, oh, Jesus saved us. I got my get out of hell free card. I'm good. I can just go on with life now. Here's the, here's the truth. This is what Jesus calls us to. It's what he's commending in the church at Thyatira. But it's his expectation, I think, for all believers. And so here's the challenge for you in this purpose. And, and, and I don't mean to always challenge, but there needs to be challenge. If you're not growing, if you're not recognizing how the gospel of Jesus is changing you, then you need to ask yourself why. Why, why do I still care more about my job than my Savior? Why, why do I still care more about my, my uh, approval from people than my approval from Jesus? Why do I still strive to make more of myself and live for my own purposes and live for my own fame than I do for bringing glory to Jesus? Why? See, the gospel of Jesus changes us. It changes the direction and the outcome of our life. See, no, we're no longer are we headed to condemnation and separation. We're headed in the direction of redemption and restoration. We're headed to a place where we get to walk in His presence forever and ever and ever. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes the flow or the rhythms of our life. No more can our priorities for relationship, priorities for time, and priorities for money, no longer can they remain the same on us walk in Christ and grow in Christ. It changes the purpose of our lives. We're, we're now living for Jesus if we're being changed by the gospel. That's an automatic thing that happens. It even changes our identity all the way down. All the way down to the very core of who we are. I am no longer a sinner. I am a saint. And for you in Christ, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. You have been washed white as snow, cleansed by His blood. No condemnation, only hope, only grace, only mercy. This is the closest you come to His rejection and you live now in His acceptance. You are saints. That's it. It changes us. And that identity change changes everything else about us. So if you're not growing, why? And if you are here, Jesus' commendation Well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up. Keep it up. As the case for many of us. And here's the thing. I I really believe that there's many of these attributes that are alive and well in our church. I believe we are hardworking, Jesus-loving, trying to serve Him well, serving one another as we love Him, striving to be faithful. I I believe that this, this identifies us in many ways. But as is the case for many of us in our weaknesses... There's always stuff happening. And so Jesus doesn't start off at verse 19. He continues into 20 and he lays out the bad for them. And he says, here it is. This I have against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel such that now you're taking part in sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. 
when Jesus brought this up, now we need to, I think we need to recognize that this woman who is acting as a prophetess in Thyatira, I don't think her name was Jezebel. This is an Old Testament illusion. See, Jesus, man, he, he reigns them both. They are his truth. He references back to the Old Testament, and he says this woman Jezebel, who was responsible in the Old Testament for leading his people astray. They still remained responsible. They were responsible for their own actions. She was responsible for leading them into this. But he says to, to, to them, and this is why he holds it against them, because they're responsible. You are tolerating this. You're, you're living in it. You're allowing it. It's okay with you. You feel good about it. And if you remember last week, we were learning from Pergamum in a church whose doctrine had been tainted, who, who began to listen to false teaching. It sounds a lot like the same problem. But I think what we're seeing here is the logical progression of what happens when a church begins to let go of its doctrine. You're no longer just dealing with people who are teaching lies. You're dealing with people who are living in accordance with those lies. You're dealing with people who no longer see anything wrong with sin. You're, you're dealing with people who no longer care if, if their brothers and sisters in Christ are stuck in transgression. You're dealing with people who, don't, who, who, who it doesn't matter to what we do as long as our hearts are right. And I think that that's exactly what's happening in Thyatira, is that the, the logical progression has occurred. They're no longer just hearing it taught. They're tolerating it and allowing it to happen. They, and, and so Jesus comes to them and he says, you are tolerant, sexually immoral idolaters. I don't know how you balance the two of these perspectives. Man, there were some good things about this church. But there's something really bad going on. You see, I, I, Jesus doesn't expect our perfection. Well, let me, let me say that a little differently. Jesus' standard is perfection. Okay? No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's what he expects from us. But his grace allows for issues like this as he calls us to repentance. And see, that's the only way these two, these two ideas fit. It's the only way these two, two perspectives can be in the same room together. But recognize Jesus is not tolerating. He's not saying it's okay. He's calling them to get rid of it. In fact, what Jesus is commending is intolerance. Tell that to the world around us. He, he's telling them, you shouldn't be tolerant of sexual immorality. You shouldn't feel okay about it. Here's what happened. Let me give you just a little bit of insight into this church and where it lived and existed. In Thyatira, there was many, there was guilds that were given to different crafts and different um, different. Uh, I don't want to say professions. They were kind of blue-collar workers, though. So there was woodworkers. There was, in fact, if you remember from Acts chapter 16, there was Lydia who dyed purple cloth, and she sold it. She was the first Christian in Philippi, but was actually from the city of Thyatira. And these guilds were given to their own crafts. And so it's kind of like unions, like you have the electrical workers. What is it? The Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. I don't know. It's unions, you know, and these people are devoted to these unions or these guilds. And, and in fact, each guild had their own God. And they would come together and they would have these worship services, if you will, for these personal or guild gods. They're false gods, obviously. They're idols. And, and people that were part of these guilds were not just expected to, to uh, take part in the guild. They were expected to take part in the worship of these false gods. 
And so likely what happens is Jezebel comes in and says, hey, it's okay if you're a Christian, it's okay for you to go off and take part in that. It's okay for you to do those things. It's okay because your spirit is clean even if your flesh is dirty. Something like that. And so here these Christians are. They're in a place where they're a part of a guild. And Jesus didn't call them out of their work. He simply called them to be Christians where they were. And now they're being expected to pull back from these guilds. But they weren't. And so these guilds, what would happen is these worship services would come together and there's going to be a sacrifice to the false god. And the food that was there, they would feast on it. And as they feasted on it, they were devoting themselves and committing themselves to this false god of the guild. And I don't know, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine because we're such a civilized, notice the quotes, we're such a civilized culture. It's hard for us to imagine or feel good about the idea of public orgies. But that's what would happen. These worship services would go from feasting to feasting on one another. And just, man, they'd just get, go crazy. So we like, to, we like to keep our sexual morality quiet and hidden, but not, not there. They were all about it. And so if they were going to be a part of these guilds and a part of this stuff, they were going to have to take part in these things. And Jesus says, no, I, I can't tolerate that. I can't be okay with that. And he comes to him, and, and we're going to deal with each of these by themselves and I'm going to start with sexual immorality simply because I think it's really likely the easiest for us to recognize and be okay about. We, we know sexual, sexual immorality is not acceptable to Jesus. Some of us like to define it in different ways. Some of us like to, to play around with the idea of what sex is. And so we say we, we come up with stages of sex and some of it's just making out. And then you have different acts. I'm not going to get too graphic. I, but, but the reality is we, we save the act of sex for what really constitutes sexual immorality. I don't think that that, that that flies under biblical teaching. Romans 1, it teaches us, Paul says, because they rejected their creator, because they didn't recognize him as God, they moved into sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is taught against all the way through the New Testament. In fact, nearly every letter of the New Testament, every, near, nearly every one, speaks against sexual immorality. It speaks against any sex act whether it's hetero, homo, bi, or all alone, that is outside of God's design. Homos, or, or, I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, not homosexual, but sexual immorality is any sexual act. Whether you've got your clothes on and you're just making out or going all the way. It, it's any sexual act that's outside of God's design. It doesn't matter if you're a heterosexual. And you try to justify, well, at least I'm with a woman or a man, and, and that's okay with God. If it's not within marriage, don't do it. You shouldn't be doing it. it, it homosexuality, this is a huge taboo issue. But it's no different than, than heterosexual sex outside of marriage. It's not tolerated by Jesus. He doesn't feel good about it. Bisexual, being a, going back and forth, that doesn't make him happy. It doesn't honor him. It doesn't bring him fame. Did you hear the words that, that he read at the beginning? Should we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. He goes on to say in, in the rest of that chapter that we are slaves to righteousness. This, this, the, he, Paul teaches in Ephesians that these kind of things shouldn't even be named among God's people. Jesus is intolerant of this. 
He doesn't approve of it. And he calls his people to repent from it. So you call it whatever you want. It doesn't matter if it's happening in your mind. I mean, if you're fantasizing over the FedEx delivery man, isn't that something that they like to do in the movies? They always make the UPS guy or the FedEx man all muscular and sexy, you know, and so the, the women at the office always, I've met some fat ones and they don't all look, come on. I mean, really? But the reality is this. If he's not your husband, you shouldn't be fantasizing about him, whether he drives for FedEx or UPS. If you're in high school, if you're in college and you're trying to feel okay about your boyfriend filling you up or you filling up your girlfriend because I'm not going to take her clothes off, that's wrong. It shouldn't even be mentioned or named among Jesus' people. Jesus is intolerant of sexual immorality. Sorry. No, I'm not, but I felt like I should say that because I'm told to be tolerant. Then he goes into eating food sacrificed to idols. This seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, if Revelations is the only book of the Bible you ever read, you'd feel like, oh, okay, Jesus doesn't want us eating food that's sacrificed to idols. But then what happens if you decide to read 1 Corinthians? Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul deals with and agrees with the Corinthians that this food, sacrificed to false gods, isn't really sinful food. It's not like the food becomes evil because of what people did with it. It's just like, it's just like guns don't kill people. The people that own guns kill people, right? I mean, we all would agree with that. We feel good about that, right? Guns aren't evil. The people that kill people with them are evil. It's the same with food. So are Paul and Jesus at odds here? Well, no. Because they're dealing, we have to deal with the context. We have to deal with the understanding of the teaching that both are coming with. In fact, I think when you do that, they move into a complete agreement that, that there is never a, a doubt between the two. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 and, and read about it, you're, you'll hear Paul justify that the food doesn't become evil. But then he says, don't eat of it. He says, you shouldn't eat it. Yeah, the food's not evil, but why don't you eat it? Because you're concerned about your witness and you're, and you're concerned about laying a stumbling block out for weaker and less mature Christians. So limit your freedoms to ensure that you don't offend someone else. Don't eat it, even though you could. And then he says, and, and you know, that Jesus comes along and, and teaches, well, you shouldn't eat it. Well, what's he mean? Is he referring simply, you know, there's a couple, three ways that you could eat food sacrificed to an idol. You could go to the market there and buy food unintentionally to spend sacrifice to an idol because what would happen is after the feast they would take the food and they'd move it into the market and they'd sell it and these people would make money off of it but they didn't necessarily advertise to you that it had been sacrificed to an idol so if you didn't know did it make you evil had you sinned unintentionally no there's nothing wrong with the food you show up at somebody's house and you sit down and they offer you a meal you may not know that food might have come from the temple that had just been sacrificed that had just been offered up to some idol. Have you sinned by eating dinner with them? No. And that's, that's the whole idea of what Paul is teaching. Jesus is dealing with these people who are taking part in these immoral lifestyles, in these pagan activities, and their lives are mirroring pagan lifestyles. And so they're not simply just not eating the food because of conscience. They're eating the food because they don't care. 
when Jesus would say, don't eat the food. Because I'm the only stumbling block. I'm the only one that should cause people to stumble. I'm the only one that should bring an offense. You see, here's the deal. If you're here visiting with us today, I hope you're not offended by our methodology. If you're offended by the fact that Jesus is intolerant of sin in his church, that's his message, not mine. And so I'm not going to make an apology for that. We shouldn't make apology for that. We shouldn't feel condemned by the world simply because we don't look like the world. Jesus expects us to be different. He expects us to be growing in spiritual maturity. You see, Jesus is condemning them for becoming more identified with their freedom than with His grace and truth. He's more concerned that they are walking and not concerned about what they're doing on the outside because they're cleaned up on the inside. And He tells us we can't can't separate these two. One should change the other. What He does in us should change how we live outside of us and how we look outside of us. If we demand our freedom over our witness to others, there is a problem. For example, here in our church, we teach that alcohol is not some evil, sinful thing. And so we have a culture in which people feel okay getting together and having a drink together. Now, we do teach against drunkenness because biblically you can demonstrate that it is wrong and sinful and Jesus is intolerant of drunkenness. He says no. So we say no. But here's, here's what I'm concerned about for us. I'm concerned that all too often we walk in this freedom and demand this freedom over partnering with others or even the concern of what Jesus is doing with us in this culture. How would you define Springfield? Would you define it as a place where, where our brothers and sisters in Christ feel really good about sitting down and having a drink together? Probably not. But how many of us have these conversations without even considering the people we're sitting with? We talk about, oh, I tasted this drink. I really enjoyed it. The reality is how many of us are going farther than what would honor Jesus because we drink more than one or two and we're living in our freedom. We're identifying more with our freedom. So I think for the way, this is a place where we need to be challenged. Jesus is intolerant of us identifying more with our freedom than with him. He doesn't allow for that. He doesn't want us to do that. Jesus has made us holy. That means distinct. There should be a marked difference between you and I and those who aren't believers. Church, we're not isolated from the world, but we should be distinct from the world. They should recognize something different. Jesus has made us holy and He expects us to act like that. We're not to take part in the sin of others. We're not to be given to our freedoms that deny Him and deny Him. We're not to to make our lives, uh, we are to make our lives more about His honor in every area. This is His call to His church to holy living. And, And I believe that's what we see happening in Thyatira. And he comes to tolerance. And we're, we're always running short of time on some of the most important stuff. We're, we're just going to have to deal with this. It's the most difficult issue probably to describe because there are so many nuances to the idea of tolerance. It is possibly the, the one that we are being hammered with the most in our culture today. 
because we're told that we're intolerant in, in everything. But I want, I want to set aside, I want to set up two ideas that will frame everything else and help define everything else I'm about to say about tolerance, okay? And they're up there for you to, for you to deal with and think about. To be tolerant of something demands that we find that thing offensive, okay? If you're not offended by homosexuality, you don't have to tolerate it, do you? If you're not offended by heterosexual sin, yeah, heterosexual sin, then you don't have to tolerate it, do you? Because it doesn't bother you. To tolerate something, by definition, demands that it bothers you, that you find it offensive. And tolerating something is different than condoning it. Just because we tolerate something doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, by definition, defines that we don't condone it. And Jesus really is calling his people to be intolerant of false teaching, sexual immorality, and taking part in pagan lifestyles. That's what he says. That's what he's getting at with these people. Christians, we get a bad name for this. But the truth is we're really no more intolerant than anyone else. Let's, I mean, just test this. How many people do you think would tolerate a pedophile caring for their children at a before and after school program? Probably not very many. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you got on the sex offenders website, you know, that's public knowledge. If you don't, go and check it out. You can find out if there's sex offenders in your neighborhood. Go on there, find a sex offender, and go to him or her and ask if they feel like they live in a tolerant culture. They probably don't feel like they, they are tolerated very well. We don't tolerate that, do we? We don't tolerate people messing with our kids, the most innocent among us, do we? We, we don't tolerate drunk driving. There's a bunch of people that do it, but we don't like it, do we? We, we have laws against it. We have consequences for doing it. And God forbid you should kill somebody. We definitely don't tolerate killing somebody, especially when drunk driving. That's like the epitome. That's the worst. How about when people steal from one another? Do we tolerate that very well? Do you think anybody in our culture really feels good if they walk into their house and all their stuff has been taken from them? We don't tolerate that very well, do we? And we shouldn't. It's okay not to tolerate that stuff. Feel free to be intolerant about those kind of things. Let me just give you permission in case you need it. Our culture, let me ask you this. Is our culture tolerant of Christianity and our perspectives? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe kind of here in Springfield. But at large, the American culture today is becoming more and more intolerant of Christianity. What happened when... When a guy who owned a business exercised Chick-fil-A, and I, I'm not getting on the bandwagon for Chick-fil-A, I'm not trying to advertise, but he exercises his freedom to, to free speech. He exercises that right, and what happened? He was not tolerated, was he? Man, everybody's intolerant of something. Here's the challenge. Be intolerant of the things that Jesus is intolerant of. Be be intolerant of the things that he opposes. And so we have to understand exactly what he's not tolerating. And he comes and he says, I'm not tolerating Jezebel, and I'm not tolerating this lifestyle among my people. But here's the key. It's among his people. 
He didn't say, look, I'm not going to tolerate sin in the world. I'm not going to tolerate the the sinfulness of mankind and, and just let my people do whatever. He's speaking about within the church. Here's, here's, where we, here's, here's where we need to land. Anything offensive to Jesus should not be tolerated among Jesus' people. So in our church, we do not tolerate sexual immorality. I will not tolerate allowing somebody to walk in a pagan ritual and lifestyle. I will call you on it. And I know my brothers and sisters will call you on it. It's okay. It's a good thing. It doesn't mean that we're going to come to you as a jerk and, and, and we're not, you know, let's just say a guy is struggling with pornography and this has happened and it, and it will continue to happen. A guy's struggling with pornography and he comes and he confesses his sin to somebody in the church. We're not going to put his name in the newsletter and say, everybody needs to know this. This guy is struggling with pornography and we're not going to tolerate it. No, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to do what Paul commanded us to do in Galatians. We're going to bear with sin together. It doesn't mean tolerate. It doesn't, it's not the same thing. It's two ideas, two different ideas. Tolerating is allowing it and feeling okay about it and, be, and dealing with it. Bearing sin together is, man, this guy's struggling with pornography. I'm going to come up underneath him. I'm going to grab it and lock arms with him. I'm going to walk with him until he's no longer struggling with it. And I'm not going to condemn him. I'm going to give him accountability, which in and of itself is a dirty word in our culture. But when you're accountable to someone, you have freedom. You are free to make the right choices when you make yourself accountable to others. And so that's what we do. We, we come up by them and we give them accountability. We give them support. We bear that load so that it's not them by themselves until they can walk in victory, until the gospel comes in and brings conversion. And suddenly that thing that's offensive is not just something that offends them and they walk in, but it offends them and they're wa- able to walk without. That's what we're going to do. In some cases, it may require us to remove them from a role until they can get healthy and walk the way Jesus would have them walk. But the reality is all the actions we will do within the church is call you to repent, give you accountability, and act act towards you in love and compassion. But we can't tolerate it. We can't make you feel okay about it. We can't let you just stay where you're at. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. But here's what we should tolerate. We should tolerate sin outside the church. You see, outside the church is a totally different story. We should tolerate sin outside the church because we're not surprised that sinful people act like sinners. There's none of us, not one of us, that doesn't sin in our life. It should not surprise us that when people who have not been affected and changed by the gospel continue to act like they've not been changed by the gospel. Is that a surprise? Nope, I'm the one that changed. That's why my life's changing. I can't look at them and continue to, to, to just blow them off or not care for them or not be with them. We tolerate this type of sin. We tolerate sin for the purpose of preaching the gospel, demonstrating grace, and teaching truth. We wouldn't have to tolerate it if it didn't feel offensive to us. But we tolerate it so that we can go to people and share the gospel with them, actively, physically, tangibly demonstrate the grace of God to them, and allow them to hear the teaching of truth that comes from Jesus. We have to tolerate sin to do that. 
We have to get close to it. We have to get into the messiness of people's lives. To share the gospel demands that we tolerate those things we don't condone, but know that there is salvation from. We have to tolerate these things that don't make us feel clean and don't make us feel good about life, but we have to tolerate them so that we can share the gospel with the people who need to hear it. We have to. And so I challenge you, I challenge this church all the time to live on the fringes. That doesn't mean look like the fringes or to look like the people of the world. That means to live so holy and righteous that you are distinct in front of them. And that you're tolerating the evil around you that you might bring truth and grace and light into the darkness. That's our call. That's what we're left here for. Jesus didn't save us to remove us. He saved us that we might be on his mission and be his witnesses. So we must tolerate sin as we do this. And here's the rub. And here's why it's such a big deal for us. And here's the challenge. Today, we are more likely to try to legislate morality than call people to repentance by the authority given to us in Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. I, I, and we live in a free, a free country. We get to have a vote. So you know what? Go cast your vote. You have freedom of speech. Let people know how you feel about things like homosexual marriage and abortion how the government spends our money. I have no problem with it. Go, go do it. You are free to do that. But don't ever think that you can legislate people into heaven. We need the gospel for that. And that means you can't always be doing this from afar as if casting stones. You're going to have to get close and tolerate these people that they might hear Jesus' message. That's the challenge. He goes on. There's a lot to go through. We're not going to finish. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. We're going to quit. We'll figure this out. We may come back to it later. The reality is this. We are the people of God and should reflect his work. If you're a member here, you know that this is the call. If you're not a member here and you're not a member somewhere else, you need to consider being a member here because we're going to tell you the truth. We're going to do it in love. And God has a purpose for, for you and to be involved with his people. If you're visiting and probably maybe I'll never see you again, you need to hear this, that Jesus is intolerant of sin. I've got to read these next verses because I have to move into this. I, you have to hear it. If this is who you are and you are walking in sin and you are, and you are not God's people or you are not part of the church, you need to hear this. He says, and, and this becomes his warning, I will strike her children dead. Oh, I'm sorry, let's step back a verse, verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, speaking of Jezebel, for her actions. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. This is Old Testament Jesus, man. I mean, he's not pulling any punches. He wants you to hear this. There's, there's an ugly truth about our lives that our sin deserves sin or, or judgment and condemnation. Our sin deserves to be cast aside. We as sinners deserve this judgment. But hear the merciful truth there as well. Unless they repent. 
This isn't just judgment. It's not just ugly truth. There is mercy rolled out here. You see, Jesus isn't just bringing judgment. He is bringing grace and mercy. And He is calling people from their sin into His light. And if you're here today and you have never in your life, in a moment, confessed that you're a sinner, owned up to the fact that you need Jesus, His death and His burial and His resurrection for your salvation, you need to do that and you need to turn from your sin and trust in Him. That's the call. Otherwise, there is judgment. And there's condemnation. Church, do you see why it isn't so important that we walk as we've been called to walk? This is a tough message. But it's even tougher when we're walking as everyone else in the world and no one can see any difference between us and them. The only thing that makes us saints is Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, the life that we have in Him. Church, hear the call, heed the call. And if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus, hear the call before the judgment comes. There is time. And He's allowing you to live in it and walk in it today. Let's pray. Jesus, you're good and you're gracious and we love you and thank you. So grateful, God, that you have cleansed me, that you've made, made me whole. I'm grateful, God, for the work that you're doing in our church and among our people. God, I pray, I pray that we would hear your warnings and heed them, Father, and that we would walk in repentance admitting our, that we're wrong, admitting that there's things that we oftentimes struggle with and love more than you, admitting that there's times that we don't walk in the faith we're called to. God, admitting that, that maybe there's ways we're not growing as we should. God, would you, would you work in us and bring conviction as necessary that we might repent? And God, will we hear your call to walk holy as we walk in a, in a fallen and sinful world? We know we can do this because of your work through Jesus, God. We know that we are saved by grace, through faith, because he came and he died and he rose again. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.